You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Today we, uh, we wrap up our Faithful Presence series uh, with a second week in politics. Uh, so if you are here with us last week, or maybe you got to catch up after the fact online, uh, last week the aim was to put politics in their proper place. Uh, human rule, political power uh, are always subject to the sovereign and good rule of God. And so we, as the people of God then, uh, should neither overvalue politics to the point they become the object of our hope, nor should we undervalue them to the point where they become unworthy of our involvement. Today, uh, we're going to aim to point out some problems with both conservatism and liberalism. And then we're going to consider what it looks like to be Jesus' faithfully present people, uh, however we vote, and whomever ends up in office. Uh, So for shorthand, you can just refer to today as Offend Everyone Sunday. (laughs) Offend Everyone Sunday, and uh, it's hot in here because the air conditioner broke, but that's not like a tactic that we use to try to make you like sweat more, but I am sweating more than normal because our air conditioner is not functioning properly today. Um, Now, I I don't, as we venture into this, I don't presume to think I'm going to resolve all the hard questions for you. And in fact, I might be actually introducing some hard questions for you that you'll be wrestling with. I have been, though, this week uh, pleading with the Holy Spirit to grant all of us uh, more grace and more truth and more wisdom and more love and perhaps even a a better and more thoughtful approach for how we engage in the public and political arena. So in Joshua chapter 5, the Israelites have been set free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, They've wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses now at this point has died, Uh, and so Joshua, his protege, is now leading the people. Uh, They have crossed over the Jordan River. They're about to attack Jericho, which is the first city in the land that God promised to give so many centuries earlier, promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. So that's the background and setting. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, in this text and in this moment and truly in every moment of our lives, we wish to see Jesus. So by your Spirit's power, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see his glory. Let me pray that through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Uh, In the Bible... Uh, When you encounter a heavenly being with a drawn sword, that's a big deal. Uh, That's a big deal. It's a sign of impending divine judgment. And so Joshua here, understandably, wants to know, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you for us 
or are you for our adversaries? And this commander of the army of the Lord says simply, no, no, neither of those things. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord and now I have come. He won't allow himself to be fitted into Joshua's box. And this teaches us something incredibly important. Incredibly important. Whose side is God on? God's side. Whose side is God on? He's on God's side. Now that might align with some particular thing that you and I are part of in our own lives in any given moment, but it doesn't mean that God is wearing our team's uniform. Israel actually was unique. Uh, if, if ever God were going to don the uniform of a nation's state, it would have been ancient Israel. In fact, in some texts of scripture, it does seem very much like God is donning the uniform of ancient Israel. But here, even with Israel poised to begin claiming this land that God himself promised to his people, God asserts God is on God's side. God is on God's side. In response, Joshua falls on his face and worships. And that's a really significant, important response. Because in scripture, when a human being attempts to worship another human being, or even when a human being attempts to worship an angel, there's an immediate rebuke of the worshiper. Get up, they say. I'm, I'm just a man like you are. Or in the book of Revelation, when the apostle John worships an angel, the angel says, get up, I'm just a servant of God like you. Here, there's no rebuke. There's no rebuke. And so most Old Testament scholars believe that this commander of the army of the Lord is a manifestation of God himself and perhaps even the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. See, Joshua here wants to know if God is going to serve Joshua's purposes. But God flips it around. He says, no, Joshua, you are the one who's going to serve my purposes. And because I'm God, wherever I go, wherever I set my foot becomes holy, take your shoes off, take your sandals off, and worship me. What are we meant to learn from this? We're meant to learn that God is not ultimately for or against any given nation. He's for God. He's for God. And if that were true even for Israel entering the promised land, how much more true is that for us on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ? Because in Jesus, salvation and redemption does not come by identification and association with the nation state of Israel. And it certainly doesn't come by identification or association with any other nation or state. It comes solely by trusting, by faith, in the finished work of Jesus. So God is not for or against any particular nation. And then by extension, within any given nation, within our nation even, for example, God is not ultimately for or against any political party. So always start here. Always start here. The kingdom of God and the Christian faith and the church is not to be identified with any particular party in any particular nation. God forbid that Christians would ever be reduced to a voting block. Christians are the ransomed and reconciled people of God, bought and purified by the blood of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to love God and to love one another and to love our neighbor. And that's not just like the 101 class of our faith. It's not something we put in the rearview mirror and then move on to other things. This is the gospel that we hang our lives upon every single day. And then rooted in this gospel, seeking to faithfully live out the implications of this gospel, 
As we do that, it will put us into conflict at certain points with every political party and every political platform. So with that as our foundation, with these as our our lenses, let's consider three things with the rest of our time this morning. The problem with conservatism, the problem with liberalism, and then our role as prophets. Problem with conservatism, the problem with liberalism, and our role as prophets. I said to the first service, I don't know if I should just say like, do I say buckle up now? I'm not sure what what we go from here, but we're going to just dive right in. So first, the problem with conservatism. And I should mention before I go any further, uh, I'm hugely indebted to an author and a professor named Jay Bujashevsky. Jay Bujashevsky is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas in Austin. And in the late 90s, he's been a professor there for a long time. In the late 90s, uh, more than 20 years ago now, he wrote these companion articles for First Things magazine called, shockingly, I'm sure to you, The Problem with Conservatism and The Problem with Liberalism. Uh, I'll be happy to send you links to to those. They're still available online if you'd like to read um, them in their entirety. Some of the specifics and the language in there will feel outdated, uh, but as a whole, it's incredibly on point. And it begins with this premise that the truth of God, the priorities and the values of God's kingdom, will critique and rebuke both liberalism and conservatism. But rather than point out immediately where it would rebuke certain positions, certain ideas or, or social um, concepts. He seeks in, this art, in these articles to get below the surface to the underlying errors that are latent within each philosophy. So for example, not just what does a party believe about abortion, but what underlying values, what underlying beliefs and convictions lead each party to land at the position that they do. He includes in these articles eight moral errors of conservatism, nine moral errors of liberalism. Uh, They would all be worth reading uh, and wrestling with. They'd all be worth a lot more time and discussion than we're able to give it today. Uh, So I'm just going to take six from each of those, uh, share a brief summary of them, and then add to that a little bit of my own wrestling, uh, seeking to to help you as the people of this church and as followers of Christ uh, wrestle with the things that he's pointing out there. Uh, hopefully, in no way is this intended as like the end of the discussion. It's actually intended as the beginning. The hope would be it prompts more discussion, helps form us together as followers of Christ in the days to come. We'll add some slides uh, so that you can follow along because there's a lot of words and a lot of isms that come from someone way smarter than me. So they'll be on the screen behind me. The first error of conservatism, the first one, civil religionism. In other words, America is a chosen nation, and its projects are a proper focus of religious aspiration. Uh, There are both uh, religious conservatives and secular conservatives. Some of the errors apply more to one uh, than the other. So this one is an error of religious conservatives in particular. Uh, But we've already seen this in Joshua chapter 5. America is not ancient Israel. America is not ancient Israel. America is not in any way a chosen nation. It's a nation loved by God. Loved by God but no less loved by God and no more loved by God than any other nation and any other tribe and tongue and people on the face of the earth. In Scripture, the city on a hill is the church. The city on a hill is the church, not America. And when we conflate the two, it does great damage to the gospel. The second error of conservatism is what he calls instrumentalism. 
instrumentalism. Faith should be used by, uh, for the ends of the state. Now, in some ways, this is true of both conservatism and liberalism. There's an attempt by uh, people in power to use faith to manipulate people for whatever ends they desire. But as liberalism over the decades has become more overtly secular, they, they don't really have many references to faith or to God in any of their, their public platforms, conservatism has kept those references in their public platforms. And so as we encounter that as Christians, follow the words of Jesus and be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. Discern the difference between what, what is sincere and what is just pandering. And we should, we should know Scripture, we should know the Bible primarily so we know who God is and what he's revealed of himself to us. We should know Scripture for worship, but also know the Bible well enough to know when it's being quoted and applied faithfully and when it's just being used to manipulate you, when it's being misquoted or misapplied to manipulate you. The third error of conservatism is moralism. Moralism, wrongly believing that God's grace needs the help of the state to advance, to flourish in the world. Or by extension, uh, that we should be legislating all of the morals and ethics of the Christian faith, even for people who want nothing to do with the object of our faith, who is Jesus. Now, uh, you might not be able to legislate morality, but all legislation is rooted in some moral idea, in some moral conviction. Uh, so we can't kid ourselves to think that we can completely pull those things apart. The point here is this, is that Christianity is never primarily about legislating things. It's never primarily about laws. It's about grace. It's about grace. So as Jay Bujashevsky puts it, Christians then may certainly commend a law as good, or condemn it as evil. They may declare it consistent or inconsistent with the faith, but not even a good law may simply be identified with the faith. Christians mustn't speak of a tax code, marriage ordinance, or welfare policy as Christian, no matter how much or even how rightly they desire its enactment or its preservation. That's moralism. Uh, the fourth error of conservatism is traditionalism. Traditionalism. What has been done is what should be done. Now there is a blurring here in traditionalism of the line between something that's worked in the past, and if we're really honest, something that's worked in the past for some small subset of the population, not everybody, what's worked in the past and something that's actually right, something that's good. Christians, as Christians, we believe that God's truth is unchanging. We also, at the very same time, believe that all of our lives is a life of repentance. It's a pursuit of repentance. And so the measure of whether or not something should be done can never be simply that we've done it that way before. That's how, actually, think about this. That's how the Pharisees rejected Jesus. That's how the Pharisees neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness in favor of their tradition. That's how the Pharisees strained out a gnat. They took great pains to make sure they didn't eat the smallest of the unclean animals, the gnat, and they swallowed a camel, which is the biggest of the unclean animals. In the same way, our criteria for supporting or rejecting causes or ideas is always truth and not simply tradition. The fifth error of conservatism, mammonism. Mammonism. Wealth is the object of the commonwealth, and its continual increase is even better. 
is even better. Now, in contrast, of course, Jesus warns over and over again in Scripture of the immense dangers of wealth, that we can't serve both God and money, uh, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be as well. In ancient pagan cultures and societies, there was actually a recognition of this danger. Uh, and the cycle that these ancient pagan societies identified went like this. Virtue makes republics prosper. Prosperity leads to the love of wealth. The love of wealth leads to the loss of virtue. And the loss of virtue makes republics fall. Conservatism, I mean, we're all, no matter where we vote, no matter where we land on this, we're all prone to, to some form of mammonism. Conservatism is particularly susceptible to love wealth, to make an idol of money. And while as Christians we do not decry money and we do not decry prosperity, indeed we see those things in many cases as blessings from the hand of God himself, Christians are also very wary of the continual increase of wealth and certainly of making wealth our object, our focus, because of its power to turn us from and to solidify our hearts away from God. The sixth error of conservatism, and the last one I'll mention today, meritism. Meritism. Do unto others as they deserve. Do unto others as they deserve. Now, where conservatism rightly emphasizes an individual's personal responsibility, uh, something that liberalism, I think, is prone to diminish, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, conservatism often puts all of the eggs into the basket of personal responsibility. Uh, it leaves no room at all, in some cases, for systemic external issues that impact a person's opportunities. It says it's all up to you. It's all a personal responsibility. Even more importantly than that, though, even more importantly than that, in meritism, is there any room left for grace? Is there any room left for grace? Imagine if God did unto us as we deserved. Imagine. This is, this is the opposite of how God deals with us. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And those of us who are Christians have come to embrace the scandal that we are treated not as we deserve, but as we need, as we need by the love and the mercy of God. And so meritism is not a Christian doctrine, which means our approach to politics and legislation can't simply be what does a person deserve. It has to always be what does a person need. What does a person need? So those are some of, some of the explanation of the problem with conservatism. Uh, second, Let's consider the problem with liberalism. The problem with liberalism. And, and to be clear, uh, we're talking about liberalism here as it's used in the modern vernacular. So historically, the word liberalism would apply to um, a competitive, self-regulating market with little government interference. That's classical liberalism. In modern times, it's really become a shorthand way that we uh, refer to uh, a larger government, a more government-driven social reform. Uh, where government becomes the, or at least a major, driver of social changes in uh, our society. And so in that sense then, uh, what are the errors of liberalism? The first is one that he calls propitiationism. Propitiationism. Uh, or do unto others as they want. And even sacrifice yourself constantly. Propitiationism is sacrifice. Pr sacrifice yourself to do unto others as they want. When you first hear this, it sounds deceptively similar to the golden rule. 
Uh, so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we sometimes mistranslate that in our own lives and think, well, what would I want in this case? This, I would want people to do for me what I want. And so I'm going to do for other people what they want. But think about that. Jesus never granted his disciples everything they wanted. And thank God for that. There's, a, there's an instance where they, they want Jesus to call down fire upon a village because they were disrespected there. They're like, just torch the place, Jesus. And he's like, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm not going to give you what you want in this moment. Love always deals in what is actually good and beneficial for another person, not just what they desire. And so notice already here how the way of Christ is going to rebuke aspects of both conservatism and liberalism. If conservatism is prone to do unto others as they deserve, liberalism prone to do unto others as they want, the way of Christ is do unto others as they need, according to the the good design of God and his definition of what people need. The second error of liberalism is expropriationism. Expropriationism. I know these are like huge words and lots of isms. That's why I wanted to put them on slides, and I'm happy to send you notes and outlines or whatever is helpful here. But this says, I may take from others to help the needy, giving nothing of my own. Uh, In other words, the groups that are in power will decide what issues or what projects our collective wealth should support, and then they will take that wealth by force, which in our society takes the form of taxation most often. Uh, Now, this philosophy in the 20-plus years since these articles were written has actually gained even more traction than it had had then. Uh, When certain groups are in power, they will direct these dollars then to causes that run contrary to our convictions as followers of Christ. That's one problem with this. But even deeper than that, even if the causes are good, whose job is it to take your money and use it for good causes in the world? It's your job. It's your job. In the kingdom of God, we are those who take from no one, but give sacrificially, sacrificially and generously without compulsion where there is need. And so it can be easy just on the surface level of things to assume, because liberalism tends to be a lot more vocal for more social causes and broader social causes, it can be easy to assume that liberalism is more generous and more charitable. But liberalism can actually be, and I think in many cases is, an avoidance of the kind of sacrificial generosity that Christians are called to and the personal ownership we're called to take in that. The third error of liberalism is solipsism. And I had to look that word up. So this is the definition. Human beings make themselves, belong to themselves, and have value in and of themselves. And then all of this, of course, is without any kind of reference to God or anything really outside of of self. It's the same lie that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. And in fact, maybe you already are like God. Again, on the surface, this can sound really good. It can sound like equal concern and elevating the value of human beings. We're all valuable. But functionally, in any given society, some people are always more equal than others. Some people always become means to someone else's ends. And without a reference to God, we become our own gods and we make God-like decisions about where we're okay with us elevating someone above others to use other people for means to their, their ends. So as Jay Budzhashevsky puts it, because mothers are not to be means to their baby's survival, their babies become means to their mother's control. Because artists and creators are not to be means to their listeners' purity, 
Their listeners, uh, their listeners become means to the artist's or creator's pleasure and filth. Because patients are not to be means to the quiet of their doctor's consciences, their doctors become means to their patient's desire to die. Always, always someone's making someone else a means to their, their end. Now, Christians believe that every human being has value and is worthy of respect, but only because and, prime, and, and precisely because they are made by God in his image. And that God is the one who, in Jesus, defines love and offered himself up in love and calls us not to use one another for our own ends, but to love one another with the same love that we've received from him. The fourth error of liberalism is absolutionism. Absolutionism. We cannot be blamed when we violate the moral law, either because we cannot help it, because we have no choice, or because it is our choice. And as you might be picking up on, even in that definition, um, there's no real consistent way to apply and practice absolutionism. In fact, one of the quotes from this article I found incredibly prophetic because it was written almost 25 years ago. But Dr. Budashevsky says this, According to absolutionism, a young man may be absolved of smashing a brick into a person's head in the excitement of a riot, but not of doing so in the excitement of a gang war, unless the motive is political, in which case he is absolved if he's a freedom fighter, but not if he's a terrorist. Is that not a little prophetic 25 years ago for where we would be even right now in our cultural moment? And Christians, in contrast to this, we affirm because of sin, because of the fall, we are morally responsible beings. And things, of course, happen to us all the time that we have no control over. Things happen to us that we are not directly responsible for. But we always have responsibility for how we respond. And we always have things to pursue repentance in. And so, in this moment where it seems like you're presented a choice, you either need to absolve racism and condemn rioting or condemn rioting and absolve racism? Is that not the choice that seems presented to you in this moment? Christians say, actually, both racism and rioting are wrong. They're wicked and evil. And we need to pursue repentance of those things wherever they're happening. Repent of racism and repent of rioting. The fifth error of liberalism is perfectionism. Perfectionism. Human effort is adequate to cure human evil. In other words, in liberalism, there's a, there's a particular uh, susceptibility to, to believe, to, to, to massively overestimate human ability and massively underestimate or deny human sinfulness. It's a misplaced confidence that we have the resources in and of ourselves to achieve human flourishing. And the article goes on to point out the ways, uh, just a couple of ways, this just always fails. It always falls short. So the war to end all wars ushered in a century of some of the worst warfare the world has ever seen. The war on poverty spent trillions of dollars and left poverty really untouched. The war on unhappiness enriched all kinds of gurus, but rates of suicide soared. But then blind to the functional flaw, perfectionism simply insists, well, we just haven't found the right way yet, but we will. We haven't found it yet, but we will. Christians, in contrast, insist that the only remedy that is adequate to really deal with the problem of evil in the world is simultaneously the justice and the mercy of God. That God will put an end to sin, 
But in the cross of Christ, these two things have come perfectly together. God will put an end to sin, but he will take the cost of that sin upon himself. And perfection will come, but not until the day that Jesus returns in glory. The sixth error of liberalism, and the last one I'll mention today, is neutralism. Neutralism. The virtue of tolerance requires suspending judgments about good and evil. Many writers over the past couple of decades have pointed out the, the inherent fallacies uh, within a lot of um, the, the conversation about tolerance. So one is the quantitative fallacy, or the more you tolerate, the more tolerant you are. Uh, but if that's true, then should we not also tolerate intolerance? If it's just a quantitative thing and the more we tolerate, well, we should be tolerating intolerance as well. There's the skeptical fallacy, which says the best foundation for tolerance is to not have strong convictions. It's, a, it's to say the more that you doubt, the more tolerant you are. But if that's true, then why have such a strong conviction that intolerance is wrong? Why, where's the confidence coming from for that? And there's the apologetic fallacy. If you do have strong convictions, just keep them to yourself. Timidity equals tolerance. But if that's true, how, are there, how is there anyone in the world who is so passionate about tolerance? Should they not be timid about their passion for tolerance and just keep that to themselves? See, here's the reality. Nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. Even if we use different language, everyone in the world, all around us, and we ourselves are always making judgments about what is good and evil. The question is, what grid are you using? What grid are you using? And is it characterized by truth and grace? Okay, where does all of this leave us? Where does all of this leave us? Homeless. Homeless. In a sense, we are homeless. If you feel a little bit homeless in our political system, good. Good, because your commitments and your primary obligations to the kingdom of God will put you into conflict with the leaders and the platforms of every human government and every political party. Our political system should always remind us that our hope is not in politics, that you and every other person you cross paths with was made for something infinitely greater than political power can achieve. Now that doesn't mean you can't support one party more than the other and vote accordingly. But if you don't feel a little bit homeless, then as your pastor, I start to have concerns about the integrity of your faith and about the consistency of your practice as a Christian. Even more importantly, because who really cares the end of the day what I think, even more importantly, you start to lose credibility as a faithfully present witness to the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus in this time and place. So third and finally, let's consider our role as prophets. Our role as prophets. In the Old Testament, a prophet was the instrument of God's revelation of himself to the world. Prophets spoke for God. Uh, they made God known. And consequently, prophets, the real ones, the, the sincere ones, the faithful ones, were not popular people. They were not popular people because God's truth offended every group at certain points. Prophets offended every group at some point. They offended everybody at least at some point. And no one could really count on a prophet to be their ally. Especially if we read 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll see the kings of Israel and Judah trying to make prophets their ally and continually being mad and frustrated that the prophet won't just line up and tell them what they want to hear. In Joshua chapter 5, we read, 
God is on God's side. He is not on the side of conservatism. He is not on the side of liberalism. And we live in a cultural moment increasingly defined by a blind and blanket partisanship. A moment in which your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers are constantly looking people up and down and demanding from them an answer to Joshua's question, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? In a moment like this, what the world desperately needs is prophets. It's prophets. People so committed to the truth of God, so committed to the kingdom of God that they're honest about the errors on all sides. Our MO is to excuse and minimize the errors on the side with which we most align and then to obsess over and maximize the errors on the side that we don't align with or all of the other sides we don't align with. A prophet has no such luxury. A prophet has no political safe space. It's the cost of credibility. It's the cost of credibility. Now, you can wrestle with the party platforms and decide which one you align with more than the other. In fact, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do that. Don't don't pick up this deceptive but self-righteous posture that says, I'm just going to remove myself from the process altogether. I'm going to do the Pontius Pilate and wash my hands of this. As God's people who've been set free from the, by the work of Jesus, we are called to be faithful citizens to our cities and to our states and to our nation. And, and as, a, as that, in that, we are called to participate as much as we possibly can to enact God's good intent and purposes in the world. And we are free as we do that to have different convictions about the best method and the best philosophy and the best approach. So I've always appreciated John Wesley's counsel that he gave now more than two centuries ago. He said this, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Great advice, great counsel for us to follow. Wesley, of course, there is speaking more about the candidate. I would just add to that the platform, the party platform. When we vote in this country, in our political system, it is always a both and. It's not just about the candidate. It's not just about the platform. It's both and. Now, you'll hear a lot more in most of the the media, it'll be all about the candidate. Because that's how they've determined over time elections are won and lost, by bashing candidates on the sides. Don't, don't ignore the candidates, but also don't neglect to consider the platforms. And if it's helpful for you, the Gospel Coalition, which is a great resource, great website, uh, over the past several weeks, they've been posting articles summarizing the party platforms for this year's election. And not just uh, the Republican and Democrat party, uh, but um, third parties as well. They post those platforms uh, without commentary. It's not their commentary. It's literally just a, a bullet point summary of positions and priorities from each party, uh, quotes from the, their own documents, things like that. It's a great resource. So consider the candidates and platforms. Find yourself, as you do that, at odds with all of them at some point, at certain, at certain points. And then, praying for the Holy Spirit to grant us the wisdom that we lack, vote for Whichever group, whichever candidate you believe will contribute to the greatest good, 
not according to that party's definition of good, but according to, to God's design and God's definition of good. Even more importantly, though, even more importantly, for the sake of God being proclaimed in the world and for the sake of the souls of men and women and children that we live among, do not so blindly and uncritically align yourself with a political party that you lose credibility as a faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here, friends, here, followers of Jesus Christ, here lies the real opportunity. Near the beginning of his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote this. A person has to be so thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime or and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. And then he goes on to say, a person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. So church, open your eyes and open your hearts. People are fed up. People are thoroughly disgusted with the way things are. And even if they are completely hostile to the good news of Jesus Christ at this particular moment, for the love of God and the love of your neighbor, do everything you possibly can to maintain your integrity and remain a credible witness to the way of Christ in the world. May your candidates, may your party lose every single election for the rest of your life if it will serve to give more people an appetite for the grace of God. Can I say it that bl bluntly? May you lose every election that you and every candidate and party that you vote for if it will give more people an appetite for the grace of God. And on that day, should that happen, may you rejoice for what is the eternally and infinitely greater victory because God is on God's side. And thanks be to this God. The prophet, Jesus Christ, entered into the world full of grace and truth and he showed us the way to the Father. As his people in a world desperately in need of prophets, vote how you will, but live and speak and serve as witnesses to that greater kingdom which cannot be shaken. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, as your disciples said in the Gospel of John, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we ask that you would help us now to hear and obey what you say to us. Make us prophets in an age of partisanship. Make us people of truth in an age of tolerance. Make us selfless in an age of selfishness. And as we find ourselves politically homeless, give us and others an ever-increasing appetite for grace. For it is there, it is there that Jesus is found. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.